today we're going to begin a brand new series uh, that we're going to take a couple of months, all of the month of May and most of the month of June, and we're going to go back to a book in the Bible called Acts, and we're going to just start reading in verse 1, in chapter 1. And uh, for those of you who are guests today, let me, let me just tell you a little bit about where we're going by telling you a little bit about kind of how we usually get to where we uh, are when we come into this room. Typically, a couple of times a year, I will sit down with our research team and our creative team and our worship team and our campus pastor team, and, and I will give them a document, an Excel document, a spreadsheet that has every Sunday for a year listed on it. And, and I will say to them during this block of time, I, I want to deal with this subject matter. And during this block of time for these three weeks or four weeks or five weeks or six weeks or what, I, I, I want to tackle the Holy Spirit, or I want to uh, work through evangelism. I want to talk about finances and how finances impact our life. And so we'll work that whole calendar out. And typically we work a whole year in advance and, and we kind of just keep a running thing going as we work through it. And so every trimester begins with the next trimester of sermons already written and already ready to go. And so I'm typically not really in this week's message until the end of the week. And we're working earlier in the week on messages that are further out. And so sometimes that works great like a well-oiled machine. And sometimes the Holy Spirit interrupts and changes everything like we just sang about. And as he changes everything, a few weeks ago in my prayer time, my prayer time ended up going through the night. And I felt like God was calling us to call a time out and to take the next two series that we're going to do and put them on the shelf. We're going to come back to them uh, one day because they're really good, actually. But we're, we're not going to do them now. We feel like the Lord called the time out. And so we're going back to the book of Acts, and we're just going to start reading. And, and so if you're a guest or a visitor with us today, let me just say to you, we're, A, we're so glad you're here. B, I, I just want you to be fully aware you've come into a family meeting. And you're going to watch a family meeting play out, which is great for you to see a little bit of who we are organically and at the heart and where, where all of this comes from out of the inside of us and our walk with Christ. Uh, but it's going to be a little different than other series. And so when I ask you to maybe hold the hand of the person beside you and sing them a song, I'm not going to do that. But when, when I ask you uh, to maybe just say a prayer or whatever, if you're not comfortable with that, then you just sit and watch the rest of us squirm. Uh, th this is a family kind of a deal, and we're going to go into uh, this book. And I'm going to talk a little while, and we'll read, and then I'll talk, and then we'll read, and then we'll talk, and then we'll read, and we'll just listen to the Holy Spirit. And so before we start today, I just want to begin on all of our campuses uh, talking to God. And talking to the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to ask every campus across all uh, four or five of them, I want you just right where you are to bow your head and then I want you to pray. And this is where it's going to get uncomfortable for you. I want you to pray out loud. And I want you to ask God to shine his light on your heart today. And I want you to ask him to take his word and use it as a light in your life. That it would be alive and not just one dimensional, but a living. And that it would speak to who you are. And, and so just kind of under your breath, maybe, you know, just a, a, above a whisper. Uh, we just want to lift a concert of prayer up over all of our campuses uh, this morning. So right where you are, would you just pray and ask God to speak to you today? Lord, today we ask that you'd hear the prayers of your kids and that you would speak to us. 
that the words would jump off the pages into our hearts, that they would cut us into our innermost being, into the marrow and our life source, and that it would change our lives today. We lean into the Word, and today, Father, we lean into the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we pray, Holy Spirit, you would move with freedom in our midst and that you would have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you got your Bible, uh, whether it's paper or electronic, flip to or thumb to Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, it's going to be incredibly important during this series for you to have a copy of the Word of God with you, okay? Whether it's a Bible, uh, a paper Bible or an electronic Bible, because I want you to write things in your Bible. I don't know if we gave today. Did we give today? Is the passage written on that notes page? No, it's not. So you got to have a Bible, okay? And so we're going to walk through this thing, and I want you to write Uh, in your Bible. I want you to highlight or make notes in your Bible, whatever application or version you may use. Let's go today and let's look at this together. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my first book. Now, let's just stop there for just a second. Who is the author of Acts? His name is Luke, okay? Luke is the author of Acts. And he says, in my first book. Now, what's his first book? Luke, right? He creatively titled his first book, Luke. And uh, after his name, and he wrote the gospel of Luke, and he's saying in my first book, which is Luke, and if you didn't know that, you should write that next to that phrase in your Bible, Luke, so that next time you read Acts, you know what he's talking about there, the first book that he had written. He said, I told you Theophilus. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Who is Theophilus? Uh, Anybody name their kid Theophilus? And the reason none of us name our kids Theophilus is not just because it's a different name and a weird name. It's only mentioned two times in the whole Bible. And the only two times it's mentioned is right here in Acts chapter 1 and over in Luke chapter 1. And in both books, this guy Luke is saying, I wrote this book to you. In fact, flip back over to Luke chapter 1 and let's read his introduction to Luke chapter 1. And and we'll skip down to verse 3 in in Luke chapter 1. It says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Every time I read that verse, I laugh because I think it is so humorous that Luke said that that way. He didn't, you know, take a jab at the other gospel writers, but he kind of took a jab at the other gospel writers, right? And he's like, having carefully investigated, like maybe they didn't carefully investigate everything. They gave you their version, but I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And I also have decided uh, to honor you, right, with giving you a version uh, of the Bible and giving you a careful account, most honorable Theophilus. There's his name again so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Certain of the truth. What's he talking about? The truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. That Jesus Christ died on a cross. He was buried in a grave and that he rose again. And this is the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus brings power uh, to the gospel. And I think it's interesting that Luke wrote both books to one guy. In our superpower series, we we looked at the gift of teaching, and we said Luke was clearly uh, a teacher. He had the bent of teaching, and he said, I've carefully investigated all of this, and I want to present to you my version of everything that Jesus taught. And he wrote two books to one guy, which, by the way, Paul wrote a book to a bunch of churches, an entirely different personality, and Luke is writing two whole books to one guy, the audience of one, Theophilus. Why? So that he could be certain of the truth. What does that mean? Certain of the gospel. He wrote two books. Now, Matthew has 28 chapters, which you would think would be the longest of the gospels, but it's not the longest. Luke is the longest of the gospels, even though he only has 24 chapters. Now, I wrote this down. Luke has 24 chapters, 1,151 verses, 19,482 words. 19,482 words. 
Acts, the second book that Luke wrote, 28 chapters, 1,006 verses, 18,451 words. Would you add those together? That's nearly 40,000 words that Luke wrote to one guy so that he could simply know Jesus Christ, so that he could know the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, Alex, why are we doing a word count? I thought we were going to go through Acts. I want to tell you how important this is because you sometimes will invite somebody to church on Easter or whatever, and they don't come, or they tell you they come and they don't come, and you're like, I'm done with them, right? I invited them. They didn't come. It's over. I want to ask you this question. What if you and I were as committed to telling people the story of Jesus Christ as Luke was to this guy, Theophilus, and we would give four 40,000 words to each person that we need to share the story of Jesus with. I think the church would take off if all of us were that committed to the gospel story. And just with that in mind, let me just say to you, you and I all have two callings on our lives. We have a primary calling and we have a secondary calling. And the primary calling for all of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is to share the gospel with the world. That is your primary calling. Your secondary calling is your occupation, which is how you live out your primary calling. And so I'm a preacher. That's how I live out my primary calling to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may be a plumber. That's how you live out your primary calling. That's how you share Jesus with the world. You may be a teacher, a businessman, a lawyer, a, a, a garbage collector. Whatever. That's how you share Jesus Christ with the world. And, and so I know people, by the way, who have moved to Tulsa, and I know people who've moved away from Tulsa to chase their secondary calling. And you do too. And I would say to you, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I can get more money you know, over here in my secondary calling, and this is what I do for a living, and they'll pay me more to do that for a living over here, and so I'm going to move over here. I don't have a problem with that as long as it doesn't get in the way of the primary calling of sharing Jesus Christ with the world. Do you understand? And so sometimes parents will walk into my office and they'll say, Pastor, I need you to talk some sense into my daughter or my son. And so, well, what's going on with your daughter or your son? Well, they want to go spend two years uh, after high school and they want to go to Africa and tell people about Jesus instead of going to college. I need you to help them out. Do you understand the duplicity in that? Of saying that I got a problem with my kid living out their primary calling to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and let the secondary calling set on the bench for a couple of years while I figure it out and mature as to what the path is going to be for my life. I, listen, I, I'm just saying to you, we got to get this straight and we got to live with this straight in our lives that the primary calling of every follower of Jesus Christ is to share Jesus and to share the gospel with the world. And the understanding that is going to help you understand uh, the book of Acts as it plays out. Now let's go down to the next verse. Verse one, we're, we're only eight words in. You got to listen faster. In my first book, I told you at the office about everything that Jesus began to do and to teach, which means Jesus just began teaching and doing in the gospels that he's still teaching and he's still doing in the lives of his children until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after, and I want you to underline these verbs, he suffered, died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, which why did he have to prove that he was alive? Because they saw him die. 
They saw him butchered. They saw him bleed out. They saw him tortured and lay, and lay dead in a tomb, and then he came back to life. I would say to you, you would have to prove to me that you were alive. If I watch that happen to you, for 40 days he gave them convincing proofs, is what the Bible said, that he was alive. You remember the story of Thomas where, you know, Thomas wasn't around when the, Jesus showed up the first time. The disciples kind of walked through a wall, and there he is, and, and they all encountered him. He leaves. Thomas comes back from Quick Trip or wherever he'd been, and, and they say, Thomas, Jesus is alive. He said, nope, I don't believe that. They said, Thomas, we're telling you, we saw Jesus. Now, I'm not going to believe that. And Thomas says, I won't believe that until I touch the nail prints and put my hand in the wound in his side, which I got to tell you, sometimes we're hard on Thomas. I gotta, I'll confess to you, I would have been just like Thomas. If I saw a man die and then you tell him he's alive, I would say, I'm not going to believe it until I see him. And the application there, by the way, is if you're here today and you've not encountered Jesus, he wants to show himself to you. And if you will be willing and you would ask him to, he will not only show himself to you, he will prove himself to you and he will talk to you. As the Bible says, he talked to the disciples and he talked to them about what? About the kingdom of God. I think it's interesting. For 40 days after the resurrection, he chose the topic, the kingdom of God. There are a lot of things he could have talked about, but he spent all 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. And he died and he rose again and he's resurrected, which by the way, that's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world is the resurrection. The difference is not that their God came. In every, many religions, their God came, right? The difference is not that in Christianity, our God died. That happened in a lot of religions. But the difference between Christianity and every other religion is our God got up out of the grave and is resurrected to life. That's what sets it apart. And it's through the resurrection that you and I find our joy. It's through the resurrection that you and I find our hope. It's through the resurrection that we find our strength. The resurrection of Jesus Christ set this apart. He appeared to them. Uh, by the way, this is right where Luke get, left his gospel off in Luke 24, okay? And so you can write that down just to go read Luke 24 to get a running start into what we're doing in, in Acts. And Jesus wants to talk to you. Look at verse four. Once when he was eating with them, which I love that, okay? There's great application there. That means in our resurrected bodies, we get to eat, which is good news, right? We get the news. And I, I believe with all my heart that the calories are gonna be flipped in our resurrected body. That broccoli is gonna be full of calories, and red meat and chocolate cake is going to be healthy. And I believe that with all my heart. That's Luke 24 again, too, if you want to find that. Later, you can go read it. But look what he commanded them. He said, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends the gift he promised. Circle that word gift in your Bible. Gift. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now circle the word Holy Spirit or words Holy Spirit and draw a line between the word gift and Holy Spirit. What's the point I'm trying to make there? I want you to know and understand the Holy Spirit is a gift that Jesus gave those of us who know him. Do you remember when Jesus was going away and the boys were saying, Jesus, don't leave, don't go away. And he said, if I, if I don't go, I can't send another one. But if I go, I will send another one like me. And, and who he was talking about is the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is paraclete, which means to come alongside, that the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside you and walk with you. And just in case you're wondering Christian theology, a Holy Spirit living in you is better than a Jesus with skin on somewhere else on the planet. It's entirely better. In fact, it's better than what the prophets of old experienced. They all said they long to see what you see. 
And they wish to know what you know. Hindsight is always better than foresight. And looking back, we have the privilege of looking back on what Jesus did, but we have a greater privilege of walking with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. Now take a look at what happens, by the way. He's saying to them, I'm giving you a gift. I got something for you. He's eating with them. And the disciples, you know, do just like our kids do at times. They, they, they just go from left field with some question that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, which gives you clear indication they're not tracking with us, right? And the disciples, look what they said. Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? To which Jesus is going, are you crazy? I mean, you don't get what I'm talking about. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But what it does indicate is that they came to Jesus with false motives, right? And they were coming to Jesus. They had been following him for three years. And the expectation was what the prophets had said, is that a Messiah is going to come out of the root of David, out of the root of Jesse, and out of the line of David is going to come a Messiah who's going to restore Israel, restore the throne, and restore the kingdom. And they were following for a political revolution that they believed was going to happen. By the way, a bunch of the prophets indicated that he would be a suffering servant, that he would die, that he would give his life. But they ignored all of those prophecies. Why? Because they wanted this one so bad, they ignored all of this one. Which is, We do the exact same thing with Jesus. That we want this so we forget about and don't pay attention to this. And, and by the way, we can't be too hard on the disciples about following Jesus for false motives because you and I do too. The invitation given when I was 15 years old was, hey, if you don't want to go to hell, pray this prayer. I said, I'm in. Those are the choices, right? Go to hell or pray this prayer. I'm praying the prayer because I don't want to go to hell and I want to go to heaven. And I, I end up coming to Jesus for very selfish reasons, j just like you came to Jesus for selfish reasons. And the resurrection, they wanted this conquering king, and, and they got a suffering servant. And, and they wanted their kingdom to be built up, and God had something better. He wanted to build a spiritual kingdom here on earth. By the way, what you and I ask God for rarely gets on the map with what God wants to give us. What he wants to give us is always better than what we're praying for and what we're asking for. And so often we come to God with these false motives and, and, you know, God, here's my plan and I want you to bless this plan. And I know it's a good plan, God, because it's my plan. And if you could just sign your name right here on my plan, God, we could get this thing done and it would all be great and wonderful. And, and we want God to bless with his power our plans. Or sometimes we want his plan in our timetable. But what God wants to do is give us his plan in his power on his timetable. And it's always better than what we think to ask for. Verse 7, he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and, and it's not for you to know. I think the simple translation of that verse of Scripture is, gosh, you don't know what you're talking about, and you still don't get it, but there's something I really, really, really want you to know. And, and what is that? Go on to the next verse, verse 8. But you will receive power, circle that, receive power, when the Holy Spirit, circle that, Holy Spirit, and draw a line between those two, that the power of God is attached to the Holy Spirit of God, and then you will be my witnesses. And by the way, there's a sequential order that Jesus is giving there, that you will get the Holy Spirit. When you get the Holy Spirit, you will get power, and then you will be my witnesses. And sometimes we try to do that out of order. We try to be the witness of God without the power of the Holy Spirit, and that doesn't work. That's the reason Jesus said, don't leave here until you get the gift that's going to come, because you can go out into all the world and try to be a witness, but it won't make a hill of beans difference without the power of God on your life and the Holy Spirit indwelling uh, you. And they had thought they were going to live their plan. They were going to sit in Jerusalem and wait on Jesus to come back. And when he comes back, he'll restore uh, the kingdom. Now I want you to 
look at the places that he mentions. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's drawing this target. It looks like a, a bullseye, like you'd shoot an arrow at. And he's drawing this target of concentric circles of concern. And he's saying, here we are in Jerusalem. That's the home base. And then you're going to go out a little further. That'll be Judea. A little bit further. Less friends there, right? But maybe that's like the state. This is my town. This is the state. And then he says, and you're going to go to Samaria. And then, in case you're wondering, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. I don't think they knew about Tulsa, and it would have scared them to death if they'd mentioned Tulsa, let alone Coweta, right? But what God is saying is here, you're going to go to all these places, And the whole point of that is this is not about you alone. It is about carrying this message to the whole world. And and by the way, you think of Jerusalem, that's safe. That's home. That's where people look like me and talk like me. We're going to go to Judea, a little bit different because we have less friends there. I'm going to Samaria. You remember the story we looked at a few weeks ago, the good Samaritan. Nobody likes Samaritans. And the point is, this is not about people you like. It's about people that God loves. And he wants the whole world to know about him. And then you're going to go to the ends of the earth, which means you will be uncomfortable. You're going to go places that you don't know about. You're going to do things you never dreamed. And God, by the way, I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit. So don't worry. The Holy Spirit will help you do that. Verse 9. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. And by the way, all this takes place right on the Mount of Olives, just on the outside of Jerusalem. You're standing right over the old city on the Mount of Olives watching this happen. Many times I've stood on that mountain and I've thought about this verse. And I've thought about the verse where, where the angel comes and says, why are you standing and staring, right? And some, again, we're, we're hard on apostles. Because we take a snapshot out of the Gospels or a snapshot out of the book of Acts and we get real hard on them and say, how ignorant can you possibly be, right? But, but you got to remember, it's, we're looking back. They were living, the Gospel hadn't been written. They were writing it. And, and they were living it out and, and they were in it. And now we get to look back on it and the angel says, hey guys, why are y'all standing and staring? The answer to that question is because we just saw Jesus go up. That's why we're standing here. We're waiting on maybe he's going to come back. He, you know, he died and then he came back and now he went away. Maybe he's coming back. And, and, and we're going to watch this thing play out. And the angel, look what the verse says. And they strained to see him rising into heaven. Two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. A couple of angels are present. And the angels say, men of Galilee, why are you standing and staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. And again, we can be really, really tough. Think about this. You gave up everything to follow this man. And you followed him for three years. You've done everything he's asked you to do. He told you to give baskets of fish. You gave baskets of fish. He told you to get in the boat. You got in the boat. He told you to tell them about Jesus. You told them about you. He told you to go two by two and you went two by two. And everything Jesus asked you to do, you did. And then he dies. He gets butchered on a cross, laid in a tomb, and you walk away from that. And then he shows up after he's died this horrible, horrible, horrible death. He shows back up on the scene, and now you get reunited with him. And he's teaching for 40 days about the kingdom. And one of the things he's telling you is that I'm going away. And you're going, no. You went away. You said you were going away, but you came back. And and so maybe that's what he's going to do. He's going to go away, but he's going to come back. Jesus, don't leave us. You're not just our king and our master. You're our friend. And we left everything to follow you. Don't leave. And the angels are saying to him, guys, this is not that day. 
and you got work to do and there is a mission that needs to be done. And by the way, it took Jesus 40 days to convince them of this whole thing. And for 40 days he appears and then he sends the angels and says, this is not the time. And the question that I want to ask you out of that verse of Scripture is this. Are we standing and staring? We think we got it all figured out and the whole point of this book is that we're just supposed to stay safe and wait till Jesus comes back. Standing and staring. When those were not the instructions for the church. The instructions were, you will receive the Holy Spirit and power will come up on you and you will be my witnesses in your city, in your nation, and in your world. Now go with the power that has been given to you to live out your primary calling. To take the gospel to the world. I think it's interesting. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It's E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Ekklesia. It literally means called out ones. That's the New Testament Greek word for church. It's a congregation or a gathering of people for an important purpose. A gathering. And the word that you and I use in English for church doesn't come from that word actually. It comes from the German word. And the German word church actually means a building or a location. I got to tell you that is incredibly dangerous to Christianity for us to view New Testament Christianity church as a building or as a location rather than as a movement. That's why I love the church at. What's the church at? It's the people gathering at Midtown, or it's the people of God gathering at Downtown. It's the people of God gathering at Battle Creek or DePage or Cairo, and then they go out. It's just at. The building is not the church. The people are the church. This is just where we're at and where we're meeting and where we gather, and then we go out as the called out ones. And it's a movement. And what do movements do? They move and they go. My little sister's getting ready to uh, go in, in a few weeks to leave here and, and to leave our town and leave our great church. She's going to go get on a boat with her husband and her three kids called the Mercy Ship. And the Mercy Ship is a big boat that docks on African ports. And for the first year, we'll be at Madagascar. And then the second year, they don't know yet where it'll go. And my brother-in-law is an anesthesiologist, and he's going to go be a doctor on the ship. And I don't know exactly what my, ser- uh, my sister's servant role is going to be on that ship. I don't know if she even knows. If she has, she hasn't told me. But her kids are going to go to school on the ship, and, and they're going to work all day helping and serving the people who walk up to 24 hours to get to that boat and that floating hospital to get life-altering surgeries. One of the pictures Brian showed me of the first trip they took over there, this guy walked 24 hours with a hemoglobin so low that the doctors couldn't believe he's alive with a tumor on the side of his face the size of your torso. And they'd perform that surgery so that they could remove that and remove the stigma from his life and from his lifestyle so that he could get a job and he could be paid attention to. And it's life-altering surgeries. And they went on to explain the surgeries and, the, and that they perform on this boat. And then they went on to perform or tell me the explanation for how this thing works out financially. That not only do you leave your uh, well-paying job of anesthesiologist, which he's filthy rich, right? He's an anesthesiologist, right? And, and, and so he should buy my lunch every time. And, and so... You leave that salary for two years and you make no money for two years. Not only do you leave that salary for two years and make no money, you sell everything you own because you have to go away. And not only that, that they charge you $50,000 a year to be on the boat. And when that news came out to the family tree, my phone started ringing. And uncles and aunts and, you know, and cousins long lost several branches away on this tree are, are calling saying, hey, you know what your sister's doing? 
I said, I do know what she's doing. And they said, you, you realize that they're not going to get paid for two years? I said, yeah, I, I do. They said, do, do you know they got to pay $50,000 to be on the boat a year? I said, I do. I, I think you should help them. <laughs> Glad you called. I took the conversation a little further because that's how I roll. And how much do you think you ought to give them? What do you mean? I don't know. Oh, let's pray about it. Dear God, would you show Uncle so-and-so how much he's supposed to give Jamie and Brian and help them? And, and then, you know, I'll pause in the prayer and say, did God tell you? And they're like, nope. All right, let's keep on praying. And, and, and you know, <laughs> listen, it's about going. That's what Christianity is all about. That's the calling on our lives. Go. And, and to go where God calls you to go in the power of the Holy Spirit to live on mission with him. And I think we forget that on a regular basis, that we're not a building and, and we're not a location. We are the people of God, the called out ones who are supposed to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Look at verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half a mile, which means they're moving, right? Verse 13, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room of the house where they were staying. Okay, so now they're in this upper room, which, by the way, how many people did they have in the Last Supper? Jesus and the, how many disciples? Twelve. Right? Now let's, let's read and see, see who's present here. Here are the names of the ones present now in this upper room. Count them, by the way, while you read them. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. That's not the same Judas, but it's a different Judas. And so how many do you count? Eleven. Write eleven in the margin of your Bible over there because I want to show you this. We're going to keep track of these numbers while we go through the book of Acts. But there's eleven people present there. Verse 14. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer. Circle that underline in your Bible. Constantly united in prayer. I've read this book for probably a total of months of my life, the book of Acts, over and over. And there's a question written in one of my quiet time Bibles that comes to the book of Acts. And here's the question. What's the difference between that day and this day? Because there, i just be honest with you, there are things that we read in that book that I long to see in our day. I'm praying for a day we'll see 3,000 people saved in one day. I'm praying for a day that people will come and lives will be changed and the sick will be healed and, and Jesus will sit down in our midst. I'm praying for days like the believers hearing a couple of words from the gospel and they repent and they believe immediately. And I'm praying for those kind of moves. What's the difference between that day and this day? And i got to tell you, I think that phrase we just read, they were continually united in prayer, is the difference. I think that's the difference. Because the preaching, honestly, I think the preaching is better today than it was in that day. We have way more insight today. They were just writing it, right? Listen to the Holy Spirit. We've been able to study it and study it and study it. And, and preaching, and I'm not talking about me, my preaching is better. I'm just saying I think preaching today is better than it was in the book of Acts. I think singing is probably better today than it was in that day. But nonetheless, we're singing basically the same words that they sang in the New Testament church in that day. And, and so what's the difference? I think the difference is fervent prayer. I think the disciples gathered. You remember that story where Paul was thrown in prison? It's in Acts. We might get there. And, and, and the people of God, they're praying fervently and they're believing God and, and they're praying. And then Paul comes, he's released out of prison and he's knocking on the door. Remember that? And the girl opens the door who's just been praying fervently and it's Paul. She's so freaked out, she slams the door in his face. Fervent prayer. Now look at what the next verse says. And his mother Mary was there and his brothers were there. 
Now circle the word brothers, because i got to tell you right now, this is tremendous proof that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus, listen, he walked with them for three years. He lived perfect every day for 33 years. He died on the cross. He was buried uh, in a grave. He rose again, and then he shows up in a resurrected state. He walks with them for 40 days, giving them convincing proofs that he's alive. And then he rises up into a cloud. Now, if that's not enough to prove that he is the Messiah, this word right here in the Scripture is enough to prove that he's the Messiah. And his brothers worshiped him. His mother and his brothers. Now, we don't have trouble understanding mothers worshiping their children because that happens a lot in our culture, right? Right? You're not admitting it, that, you're, that you worship your children. I'm just saying it happens. It would never happen in our church, but it happens out there, right? That mothers worship their kids all the time in our culture. But the struggle is the brother worshiping him as the Messiah. How, how many of you have a brother? Raise your hand. How many of you have ever been tempted to think he's the Son of God? <laughs> Leave your hand up. Right? None of us would do, right? You've never been tempted to think your brother is the Son of God. You ask my sister and my, and, and my brother, you ever... Tempted to believe Alex is the son of God. They would say, it's just like twice. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They would say never. Never, one time. Were they tempted to believe I was the son of God? i got to say to you, if your brother thinks you're the Messiah, there's a good chance you're the Messiah. Never would we, you, me and you believe that. But that's incredible proof right there. And, and look what, as you move on, verse 15. During this time... When about 120, write that number down, by the way, when 120 believers were together in one place. Sometimes I meet people that say, hey, you know, the church should not grow, which is wrong, first of all. Healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. Some of us are healthier than others, right? And growing things change. And people say, well, the church shouldn't be concerned about church growth, shouldn't be concerned about growing. I I want you to do the math right there. By the way, they went from 12 to 11, which if you're like me, you're going, that's the wrong direction. You ever ask God that? God, we're going the wrong way here. I want to tell you, sometimes getting to multiplication requires subtraction. It happens in our lives. There have been people who've left our church over the years, and, you know, we're leaving, we're mad, we're in a huff, da-da-da, we're going to go somewhere, whatever. And I thought it was the end of the world. I thought, no way the church will make it. And all of a sudden, the next quarter, we grow by 600 people. A few, years, a few months ago, we, we, Keith looked at me and said, hey, what was that guy's name that, you know, was such a big player in the community group strategy and the structure and all that, and he was a part of the church, and, and, and you know, he was going to lead this, that, and the other. What was that guy? I couldn't even think of his name. And when he left, I thought the church was going to fall apart. And the whole testimony is is that sometimes it requires subtraction to get the wrong things out of the way to lead you to multiplication. And by the way, that's not always people. That could be something that needs to be subtracted from your life. It may be a sin. It may be a habit. It may be an addiction that you've got to subtract from your life in order to see the multiplication that Jesus wants to take you on. Which, by the way, they went from 12 to 11 to 120. Now, you know when this is playing out, Acts chapter 1 and 2? It's playing out at Pentecost. Penta means 50. It's the festival that comes 50 days after the Passover, which, is the, which was the celebration that Jesus died on and was buried on and rose again. So 50 days later, this is playing out. They've gone to 120 people. Now, for those of you who are not math geniuses, that is a 1,000% growth in 50 days. We're not going to get to two, chapter 2 today. 
You're so glad, right? We're going to get to chapter 2 next week, and we're going to watch it go to 3,000. And we're going to track this throughout this process because it's unbelievable how this multiplication process happens and, and, and grows. And by the way, all this took place after Jesus died. And the Romans, they wanted to squash this man, right? They wanted to kill him. And the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders and the teachers of the day, they wanted to shove him up under the rug and make it go away. But it did not make it go away. It's as if it set this thing on fire. And by the way, when killing the leader doesn't squash a movement but yet sets it on fire, it sounds a whole lot like the thing that Jesus said that's going to crush the gates of hell. And the New Testament church is being birthed and is being born and is coming alive in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And look what the next verse says. Peter stood up and addressed them. I think it's funny that Peter was the one that stood up. Because just a few verses later, Peter's the one denying Jesus. That he ever even knew him. Three times, right? Outside of Caiaphas' house. And a few pages before that, it was Peter that was saying, Jesus, you're not going anywhere. You're staying here with us. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That guy that denied Jesus is the one who stood up, which, by the way, that's great encouragement to me and you, that our denial does not always equal destruction, right? That that Jesus comes with his grace and he does new things and fresh things in our lives, even when we mess it up and screw it up. And Peter said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. And if I was just teaching this passage, I would leave all this out, okay? But I've committed to go word for word through this. Who guided those who arrested Jesus, Judas, who was one of us, shared in the ministry with us. I think it's amazing, by the way, he's mentioning Judas. I would have left him out. If I was preaching, I might have said, you know that guy? There was a guy, and he's no longer with us. But he names him, and he tells him, which, by the way, Luke, in his former book called Luke, told the story to Theophilus about the betrayal of Jesus. He talked about Judas. And I'm sure as he gets to Acts, Theophilus is reading chapter 2, and he's wondering, what happened to that guy Judas? And he didn't leave the details out, by the way. Look, he gave every gory detail. Judas had bought a field with the money he received for the treachery. What treachery? Abandoning and betraying Jesus. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, and his intestines all spilled out. Which we're thinking, gross, right? Which, by the way, why does Luke include all of that? You remember primary calling? What was Luke's primary calling? To share the gospel. What was his secondary calling? Do you know? He was a doctor. Luke was a physician. And he is using his physician's secondary calling to fulfill his primary calling of sharing the gospel. And because he's a doctor, he's sharing all those gross details that the rest of us go, gross, right? Look at the next verse. Then the news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem. In other words, it was on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and everybody knew all about it. They gave the place an Aramaic akodama, which means field of blood. And we cringe when we read this, but he's using his primary calling. Verse 20, Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. Which, by the way, this is him quoting an Old Testament passage of Scripture. And sometimes people say, well, you know, you can't just quote a Scripture and use it in some sort of a context. You just have to read it word by word. That is never what Jesus did, by the way. Jesus never said, let's go to Jeremiah and verse 1 and start with verse 1. He never did that. He took the scripture which is alive and applicable and he applied it to everyday life. And and, and so you walk through it and it says, and so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized, you can write in your Bible, the beginning of his public ministry. 
That was his baptism. From the beginning of his public ministry until the day he was taken from us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it says that they chose two men who were highly qualified, uh, Bersabbas and Matthias, and, and they prayed about it, and then they cast lots. But you read that and you think, cast lots? What is that all about? They cast lots. It's kind of like that eight ball you and I had when we were kids. Remember that thing? It would say, should I date so-and-so? And you looked at it and said, possibly, right? And, and you shake it all up again. And, and, you know, some people get all freaked out about that and say it's demonic. And it may be demonic. But, but what I would say to you about this is that they the cast lots. There was some sort of gambling, some sort of rolling a dice or flipping a coin or something. That's what they did. They took two guys that were highly qualified and they said, who's going to be on staff at the church? We're going to flip a coin. And, and by the way, it's the last time in the whole New Testament they ever cast lots. You can't find it again. You know why? Because in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you no longer need to cast lots. Because the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you into all things, righteousness and sin. And the Holy Spirit convicts of both righteousness and sin. And the Holy Spirit of God leads the children of God. We don't need to cast lots. We got the Holy Spirit today. And the resume or the requirement for the one that they would choose was what? That he had walked with Jesus, that he knew Jesus, that he knew the miracles of Jesus, that he was there from the public birth of his ministry all the way to him being taken away from us. Why is that the requirement? First job interview, church interview in church. We've come a long way since then. But the, in that day, they, they said he had to have walked with Jesus. Why is that requirement? Because New Testament Christianity is not a set of doctrines. And New Testament Christianity is not a book of teachings. New Testament Christianity is a story. It is a narrative about a real person named Jesus who lived on this planet and died for your sins and then rose again and said he is coming back. It's the story of Jesus. That's what Christianity is. And in order to carry the message of Jesus, to be a messenger of Jesus, you had to know Jesus and walked with Jesus. That's all we got time for today It's chapter one. We'll pick this back up next week. My favorite chapter in the whole book is chapter two. And so you don't want to miss next week. Let's pray together across all of our campuses this morning. And I don't know where you are today as it relates to Jesus. But I want to give you an opportunity today on one of our campuses to trust Christ and to give your life to Him. If you've not done that, I want to lead you in a prayer and maybe you, you don't know how to pray and that's okay. I can give you words, but I, I can't give you faith. But I think if the words reflect the attitude of your heart that Jesus will step out of heaven and step into your life today. And if you've never encountered him, he wants to know you and he wants you to know him. And he'll show himself to you and he'll prove himself to you. And he wants to talk with you. And so right where you're seated, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I'm going to ask you to pray it out loud. I'm going to ask those who've already prayed it and already know Jesus to pray it out loud as an encouragement to you across all of our campuses. And so right where you're seated, you want to give your life to Christ. I want you to pray and say, dear God. Let's say it out loud, guys. Say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. But today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. Jesus come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, and my forgiver. 
And the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. Thank you for saving me. And before I say amen, let me just say to you, if you prayed that prayer for the first time in your life, you meant business. The Bible says the angels in heaven are throwing a party for you right now. And we're rejoicing with them. I I also want to help you who already know Christ. And you know, the death of Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. But the resurrection of Jesus is what leads us to an empowered life. And I just want to ask you the question today, as we remember and as we start this journey through the book of Acts, Are you on mission with God? Do you wake up every day on mission with God and go to bed at night aware and conscious of what that mission is? Are you on mission with God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, that wherever you go and whatever you do, you are living out your primary calling of sharing the gospel, Jesus, with the world, wherever you go? whatever you do. And if the answer to that question is no, I'm not living life that way. As a child of God, would you remember who you are and whose you are? And would you not only remember, would you repent? Repent means to turn from something and to turn to something. And, And today as a child of God, would you repent? from fulfilling the secondary purpose ahead of the primary purpose? Would you turn back to that primary purpose in your life? Today, hundreds of you are going to be on soccer fields all over our cities. Would you remember that your primary calling is to share the gospel, not to help your kid be more coordinated, Would you realize when you sit in a lawn chair next to that family that you're there as a representative of Jesus? Would you carry the gospel with you? Would you pray for the kids on the team and on the roster? Would you pray for their families and their siblings? Would you pray that God would use you where you go today? As a witness, tomorrow you're going to get up and go to work, whatever work looks like for you. Are you going to get up and go to school and you're a student? Would you realize that you're there primarily to be a witness to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you just commit that to God to walk in your primary calling? Father, the sweet prayers of your kids talking to you. As the book of Acts in chapter 3 talks about that when we repent of sin, it's a good thing. Power comes with that, and fellowship comes with that, and unity comes with that, and empowerment and a filling comes with that. And so I pray today as your kids come back, come back, remember and repent to the primary calling on our lives that you would advance the gospel, you would advance the church of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we all say, Amen and Amen. Would you thank the Lord today for truth from the Word?